This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. I'm Becky Parker Geist and I'm your host. Audiobook Connection is your place to learn about the audiobook creative process in discussions between the authors, narrators, producers, and post-production teams that bring them all together, as well as guests who have listened to the audiobooks and have questions for the creative teams. This podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. I have with me today Dorothea hubble Bonneau. She is the author of Once in a Blood Moon, a story about love, betrayal, and redemption that reframes American history. Dorothea is an award-winning novelist, a produced playwright, and an optioned screenwriter. She holds a B.A. in speech and drama and an M.A. in interpersonal communication. Wearing her theater hat, she has directed and produced numerous original plays, as well as recognized classics, including No Exit, Our Town, Grease, The Sound of Music, and West Side Story. Dorothea has facilitated numerous communications, theater arts, and creative writing workshops in such venues as the Historical Novel Society in Williamsburg, Virginia, the University of the Pacific, the University of California in San Diego, and the Davis Arts Center in Davis, California. She's currently a teaching artist with NorCal Social and Emotional Learning Through Theater program. Dorothea credits her rich life as the wife of a criminal defense attorney and as the mother of seven sons, with broadening her insight into human motivation and interaction. In her writing, she strives to honor inclusion and celebrate diversity. Dorothea, thank you so much for being with me today. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I thought I'd just start us off with a line from the Kirkus Review of your book. In the Kirkus Review, it says, Once in a Blood Moon elegantly articulates a young woman's precarious position between white and black society. Overall, this novel explores issues of equality and personal freedom in thought-provoking ways. And I have to completely agree with that review statement. And I'm just really excited to now sort of get into the meat of our conversation Tell us a little bit, if you would, about the inspiration behind Once in a Blood Moon and how you got started down the path that led to publishing it. Well, uh, I was astonished when a second cousin gave me an 80-page serialized account from the uh, uh, Emporia, Kansas newspaper about my ancestor, John Fowler, who was born in 1799. And what I learned was that John, when he was about 10 years old, had moved from North Carolina to South Carolina with his family. His father died. He had two brothers and three sisters. And at that time, because of the structure of the government, he was considered a a half orphan. And he became the ward of the state. 
So the rule of the day was uh, children who are half orphans were placed as indentures to learn a skill. His mother begged and got permission to take his three sisters back up to North Carolina where they had family. John and his brothers were put on separate plantations. John was placed in the slave quarters with the slaves, and he was worked very hard, even harder than the slaves, according to the slaves themselves, who said that the overseer would send John out into the fields without a hat, which was deadly in those times. So the slaves in this cabin became friends with John, which made me realize that he must have had a very open and generous heart to be able to overcome his grief and make friends. And uh, so they listened to him crying for his mother at night, and they hatched a plan to help him escape and travel 100 miles back up to his family in North Carolina. So they went into the woods, and John went too, and they caught squirrels, or and they made moccasins out of the squirrels' skins. And those were for his feet, so that when he walked this 100 miles, he'd be able to endure. So I was just completely moved by this story because the slaves, because they had dark skin, could not escape the Weasley, and yet they had the generosity of heart to let my my ancestor escape, and uh, they risked their lives to do that. Yeah. How old was he at that time? Do you know? He was, uh, we are thinking around 10 years old. Oh, wow. Although that wasn't documented completely, but he was crying for his mother, so he was right. young enough to cry for his mother. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So I knew I had to write this story. So I waited for the right time, and it came when I was teaching in an inner-city school. And um, my heart was broken by many of my African-American students who felt their heritage was only from the slave camps where they worked in the fields, and they didn't realize how generous-hearted, but also how wise compassionate, and how important their ancestors were in creating America. So those two th- so those two events together, combined with my father died when I was six as a result of the Korean War, and I developed a desire to bring harmony by helping people to understand one another. So those three things. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, uh, you know, and you're talking about family history and our perceptions of also of you know as as kids thinking about what our own family history is and how that can impact how we feel about ourselves that's right yeah and so i wanted to provide a different foundation yeah. especially for my african american students yeah that's beautiful and then as you were working on the novel how did you choose the protagonist well, I thought and thought about it, and uh, I realized this had to be a person who had a reason to fall in love with John enough to risk her life, as it turns out, 
to help him escape. So my research, again, took me into very surprising areas. And I discovered there was, at the turn of the century, between 1700s and 1800s, the culture was shifting from uh, affording status to people with money to demeaning them if uh, they were the wrong color. And it was ironic because this uh, was enhanced by the revolution, whereas the slaves thought they might be completely uh, free. So um, I wanted to have a protagonist who had a very unusual and gripping story. So Alexandra de Gambia. I had to choose the place where her ancestors came from. She came from the Gambia, which took me to a fascinating tribe. I studied the tribes of the Gambia, and that's where many slaves came from for the rice culture. So I found the Jula tribe. That's D-I-O-L-A in French or J-O-L-A in English. They were astonishing. They lived surrounded by people who had these huge status structures. But the Jula had an equality between men and women that was astonishing. And they had no hierarchy. Uh, they had, uh, in fact, if a war or conflict arose, they would have somebody rise to be uh, a warrior or a leader. And then that person would retire and somebody else would ascend. So, they didn't have that grasping for power. So that wow. felt to me like the very perfect <laughs> tribe for, for Alexandra to come from. Yeah. And then I discovered something just blew me away completely. Yeah. And you can find this in the, if you do a little research in um, 1526, Lucas Vasquez de Ion, a magistrate in Hispaniola, got a commission from Charles V to create a colony in South Carolina. And um, so he sailed off with his four ships. He had 100 slaves. He had indentures with him. He had 500 people altogether. He had horses and pigs and cows, etc. And he also had in his midst uh, a Dominican friar who had preached equality for the Native Americans or the Native peoples. Yeah. And uh, he softened Lucas Vasquez heart because he was on that ship with them going on this venture. So they arrived and Lucas Vasquez died in the arms, they say, of a friar about three months into their establishment of the settlement. And the people who rose to power were very cruel, did not have the same soft heart, and they began to exploit the Kofatachki natives along with the African-American slaves. The African-American slaves and the Kofatachki joined forces, and they forced the Spanish back to Hispaniola. Oh, wow. And they were there for 40 years before DeSoto came. Oh, wow. <laughs> and... They had a rice culture, so their people had been growing rice for five to six hundred years along the Gambia. 
they developed 200 varieties of seed for all kinds of weather conditions and soil conditions. And they began, they, they went up rivers hiding, thinking the Spanish might pursue them. They began kind of wet rice farming in the swamps, but gradually it became a little safer. Anyway, they were free because there was nobody there. Their captors had, had sailed off back to Hispaniola. No one busy oppressing them, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. To control so, yeah. so they developed the rice culture. And so that is uh, Alexandra's ancestry. Oh, yeah. Wow. So you have all this amazing research and you've like figured out what her ancestry is. And then now... Was there ever a question in your mind whether you would have a female protagonist or a male protagonist? Uh, no, I think I lean <laughs> <laughs> toward female protagonists. Yeah. Uh, so she was very wealthy. Yeah. Her father had a plantation, and I researched that. There were quite a few uh, African-Americans who had slaves, and a few were very wealthy. But the powers that were encroaching were very threatened by this African-American presence and the power that they had. Her father was murdered, and uh, Alexandra eventually had to run for her life because she was the heiress of this plantation. And if uh, she uh, could secure the rights to that, then the people who wanted to have the plantation for their own, the powers that were uh, rising and racist could not come into power. So she fled for her life. She was captured and sold into slavery. And she ended up in the slave, same cabin with John Fowler. They became very good friends. She was wounded along the way psychologically because her little brother was killed by the people who were seeking to seize the plantation mm -hmm. and she felt guilt and shame for that and she felt in John a way to do redemption and so she made it her mission to help him escape but also she loved him yeah wow yeah now in the in once in a blood moon there music plays a big part of this story and what led you to that decision to have her be a violinist? Actually, that came, that was inspired by my best friend from childhood and high school who loved the piano, actually, but music was her life and her soul. And uh, also, in the Jula tradition, ikonting and music is very, very important. Ikonting is a stringed instrument. And some people think it's the forerunner of the banjo. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the cousin of the violin. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> so she, was, she was raised in this aristocratic African-American household of high status. And she was a protege on the violin. And then as I researched, I discovered the, the Chevalier de St. George. He was born in 19... In 1745, shall I do that over again? Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. I, I discovered Le Chevalier de St. George, born in 1745. 
in Guadeloupe. He was French, African. He was known as the greatest swordsman in Europe prior to becoming a, an amazing composer. Oh, now that's that's really interesting that he was a swordsman. That like that that was his expertise prior to taking it to the bow, right? <laughs> well, he's so fascinating. And so he is uh, Alexander's favorite composer. Uh, Le Chevalier was a contemporary with Mozart, and his work was often favorably compared to Mozart's. And I didn't know anything about it. It was, it's been amazing. And I, some of my friends have done research on Le Chevalier. And one of my friends, Deborah Pittman, has recently recorded a show for PBR for public radio. Oh, nice. About Le Chevalier. Oh, that's great. That yeah. That's great. Yeah. Cool. Uh, also, yeah. And so the music is a really important theme. And Carlos Fuentes is a wonderful composer. And using his electronic expertise, he was able to recreate the Incontine, the music of Le Chevalier, to create original music, because music is a theme that runs through the, the whole story. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's a really central aspect of what Alexandria Alexandra is living through. I don't want to sh- tell too much to our listeners if they haven't heard <laughs> the book, the audiobook yet, but it, it you get to hear a lot of that music that was created for this project. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Let's take a short pause while we let you know where you can get your copy of Once in a Blood Moon. At Pro Audio Voices, we really care about helping our clients reach their goals. We've crafted a way to help our authors have higher royalties and to increase their impact in the world. If you're already a subscriber with an audiobook retailer, then you are certainly welcome to use a credit to purchase this audiobook. But if you're not and would like to help the author as much as possible, we encourage you to purchase your copy of Once in a Blood Moon at bit.ly slash Dorothea Moon. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Dorothea Moon. How was it for you as the author in this process? How was it for you hearing the audio being told aloud in this new way? It was thrilling. (laughs) (laughs) Trey Taylor uh, did the audio and she... She has the most amazing ability to empathize. I talked to her on the phone. She said, she told me that she tries to get inside of the character as she portrays the character. And that's what I do when I try to write the character. (laughs) Right, yeah. And so you never know if it's really going to come across to other people. Mm -hmm. But she captured just precisely the meanings I was intending to, to convey through her wonderful voice and also pro audio was wonderful in working with both the music and with Trey Taylor and with me to create this project. Thank you. Yeah. So you got a chance to talk with Trey Taylor prior to working on the audiobook. Tell me what that conversation was like for you also. Well, actually, I spoke to her after the recording because I wanted to thank her and uh, we had a really great connection. And it turns out she has a friend 
in this area. We're going to have lunch in February. Oh, nice. That was a wonderful connection. But she was telling me how she prepares, how it takes a lot of concentration and energy because she she invests herself in the characters. She becomes the characters. This is a really challenging story with both dark and light places in it, but the dark places are quite dark. And so uh, I, I sensed that she was feeling that throughout through her body like a wonderful actress would. And I, I couldn't have been more pleased to than having a tray was beautiful. She was wonderful. That's great. That's great. So, Dorothy, you told us a little bit about some of the surprising things that you found in your research. Were there other surprises, either in the sources themselves or in what you discovered in the process? Uh, there were a lot of surprises. What We went to South Carolina, my husband and I, to do research. And we were in Georgetown, South Carolina. And I was uh, meeting with a, a woman who was African-American, and she had some knowledge of her history. And I was astonished when she told me that it was not uncommon for the African-American slaves to help the indentures. They had a bond, apparently, with the poverty and the exploitation they were experiencing. Yeah. And that's such a generous, just a generosity of heart. Mm, yes. One of the really weird things I discovered was there was a very prosperous African-American planter in South Carolina, he owned more than 200 slaves. And people were very threatened by this. He had very dark skin. Hmm. And the tone of your skin had begun to be equated with your worthiness. So the lighter you were, the better it was, which was ridiculous. But right. anyway, but yeah. anyway, um, so people were very threatened by this. Also, because he was dark skin, he had no standing in court. So he petitioned to be acknowledged as a white man. Oh. And he went into the courts in Berkeley County, South Carolina, and he was declared to be a white man. How interesting. <laughs> that is surprising. Yeah, yeah. And another thing that surprised me was it was illegal in most Southern states for white and black people to marry, but yeah. not in South Carolina until after the Civil War. Oh. Wow. So I thought that was fascinating as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, you this has been must have I can I'm just like beginning to fathom the this journey of research and the depth of all the, the research that you did in preparing for this novel. And then as you got started, did that, did you gather all the research in the beginning and then just dive in and write? Or did you find that you would start to write and then have to go research a new thing? What was that process like? Well, actually, it wasn't very quick. It was 15 <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah. Off and on, uh, because during that time I was also teaching and raising seven sons. But then uh, the research just seemed to be all gathered, what I needed to know. And I, I didn't actually start until I had all the research in place. Mm. And uh, then the, the character sort of came to me as 
Nice. As authors will know, it's a very strange process. And that was another thing about listening to the audiobook. Yeah. It was like the story presented itself to me, but I hadn't necessarily had much to do with <laughs> <laughs> writing it. I mean, it was, yeah, it was a, a really interesting process. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, is really clear in, even from my first look at your manuscript when before we produced it as audio, was that you have a real uh, talent for dialogue. And I think that, you know, the fact that you're also a playwright, screenwriter, that, you know, and have this experience in theatrical production has really helped all of that fits together, I guess is what I'm trying to say that you you have a, a a real skill in having people speak in ways that people speak, right? That it doesn't come off as um, stilted or or false. And that makes the the actual narration process much more enjoyable and I think effective as well. Well, I I appreciate that. Uh, I think it's sort of like method acting, method mm-hmm. writing. You get into the, and I didn't know really that it had worked as well as it had until I heard it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because each of my characters speaks in a slightly different way. And that was really conveyed by Trey. She, she was wonderful. Yeah. One thing I'd like to talk about is my next project. Oh, I would love to hear. Do tell. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, this is going to be about Alexandra's mother, Josephine, who was born in Martinique. And her mother was white, and her uh-huh. father was uh, black. And uh, but she could pass for white. So this is the hook of the story. Yeah, uh, they had to flee from Martinique when the island was overtaken by the English. They were French. They fled to Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, her aunt, Josephine's aunt, and her mother decided that since the uncle was very racist, they would not tell him that Josephine had any African blood. She didn't find this out until she became a marriageable age. Ah, a secret. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that's the setup for the next story. Oh, that's great. And so is this taking place in the same time frame then as? Well, it'll be earlier. A little bit earlier, okay, like a generation earlier. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and then it will flash back to Martinique, which is a fascinating island. Okay, so will this be written as a, like a companion or like a prequel? It will be a prequel, yes. All right, all right, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a title already picked out or is that to come? Too soon for that. (laughs) Too soon. (laughs) That's great. How far along are you in in the process? I'm just thinking about going to Martinique Oh, <laughs> investigate right. the island. And, and that's been an interesting process because apparently at that time, the color bar was not an important thing. And people viewed themselves just as people in Martinique, which is yeah. really interesting. So I get to trace that whole. That's uh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I just want to jump back to sort of the beginning of our conversation when you told me that your cousin had given you this book. How did that come to your cousin? You know, I I didn't ask. I, I don't know. Uh, the thing was, he was actually a second cousin. I hadn't known him. My children and I 
when I was a single parent, moved to a lake in Missouri, Lake Lottawana. I discovered that my second cousin lived in Lake Lottawana. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. (laughs) And he knew my father, which was so touching because my father died when I was six. And he told me how generous and wonderful my father was. And and then he gave this to me. So I guess I didn't ask him how I acquired it. But I assumed it came through his family. The other Mm -hmm. thing that was interesting was about five years into this process, I had my DNA analyzed and it, according to my DNA, I am triracial, Lumbee Indian, uh, which is a, a tribe on the North Carolina, South Carolina border. And, uh, and so I felt that I, I was writing from my blood. And, Yay. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that calls to mind. Tell me about the title of this book, Of Once in a Blood Moon. Talk to us about how you selected that. Well, a blood moon is rare, and it it portends a change, and often a negative change. So Alexandra is speaking with um, Lulu, her friend, who was born to be her slave, and... uh, They're worried about her mother coming in and finding out that they are still friends instead of master. (laughs) And (laughs) so uh, her Lulu says, I I don't think we should be doing this dance together. Your mother's going to be pretty angry if she comes in. And, And Alexandra says, she only comes in once in a blood moon. So, so that's kind of a precursor for. It's a symbol, in a way, a motif for Alexandra really not knowing all the things that are coming up for her. Lots of things that she could never have guessed at. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And your subtitle, um, I know that, you know, there was some real consideration around, you know, what that should be. And I know that you touched on this, but if you maybe elaborate a little bit more about how this story of love, betrayal, and redemption, how it reframes American history. Well, it reframes American history because we go back to a different beginning, not written by the winners of the war. And and we find that the African-Americans' contribution of rice to this country is what really gave us the financial foundation to be able to go forward, in South Carolina particularly, and that their knowledge and expertise was what guided that enterprise. There were some officials from the government coming through South Carolina who noted in a quote that the African-Americans seem to know what they're doing with the rice, but it doesn't seem so true with the planters themselves. <laughs> so <Yes. laughs> that, that shows us that the African-Americans brought with them wisdom and knowledge, and without them, it's not their slave labor in the fields, that was the huge contribution, but it was their contribution of knowledge and expertise and their gracious generosity in sharing this that really helped our country to to take off. And I met with some Gola people in South Carolina, and that was emphasized that people don't understand that 
the rice culture is what really gave us the wealth to be able to proceed as mm. a nation. Yeah. Yeah. So it is really a whole different foundation, but also you can see that today we are still contending with the color bar in ways that I thought would not be true by this time, but so that the story echoes what we're experiencing today and uh, transcends color. And music is a beautiful way to con- transcend color because when people love music, it has no color. Yeah. yeah. It has a vibration and a feel. So in that way, we're reframing the sense that material acquisition is the most important thing. And, and we're finding that love is the most important thing. Yeah. And then finally, let me get a hold of this thought. <laughs> Geert Hofstede does some fascinating work with um, the dimensions of culture. One of the dimensions he noticed is that the spectrum between individuality or individualism and collectivism. And I believe that sometimes our individualistic tendencies in this country have swayed us to seize power for personal gain. And we could learn a lot from those people who practice in community and find that loving one another, interacting with another one another, and helping one another is equally prized. And so somewhere in the middle, we can bring our individual talents to the community. And I think that's another way it reframes our structure to make us maybe rethink what's important. Yeah. Nice. And how else we might venture forth in life for perhaps a happier end. Yeah. That's nice. I'm reminded you make me think of another author, Tamara Shiloh. And I know that you had some interaction, I believe, with Tamara, who is or bringing forth the history that has been has not been included in history books with black inventors and scientists and people of color who have changed the world in ways that are very significant and completely unrecognized or you know yeah we have a long way to go <laughs> well i love i really love martin luther king junior's statement that we need to learn to respect one another by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. That should fade away. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So so we hope that it comes sooner than later. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Well, I want to thank you again. And and just to remind our listeners, I'm talking to Dorothea Hubble-Bonneau. She's the author of Once in a Blood Moon, a story about love, betrayal, and redemption that reframes American history. The audiobook is narrated by Tree Taylor, and you can visit DorotheaBonneau.com for more information. Dorothea, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. Thank you so much. It's been a delight to speak with you. To get your copy of Once in a Blood Moon, a story about love, betrayal, and redemption that reframes American history by Dorothea Hubble Bonneau, visit bit.ly slash Dorothea Moon. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Dorothea Moon. Thank you so much for being with us today. 
Thanks for joining us for Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. Please take a moment to subscribe at audiobookconnection.com. The podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. Learn more at proaudiovoices.com. Again, thanks for being with us, and please join us next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.